Let's pray. Father, we come once more before you, before your throne, uh, because we understand, Lord, that we need your help. We understand that if you uh, don't come and meet us where we are at this building this morning as your church has gathered, if your spirit doesn't come to illumine the word and illumine our hearts, Father, we will leave here no better than we came. And so we ask, Lord, that you would work among us as your word is studied, as we bring ourselves underneath it, and Father, that you would give us insights into this passage. You would open our hearts to see wonderful things in it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Over the past several weeks, we've been making our way through one of our Lord's most famous parables, the parable of the sower. And we find ourselves this morning uh, looking at verses 14 to 20 at our Lord's explanation of the parable. And last week I mentioned to you that not only does this parable, this story, teach us that personal responses to the message of the gospel are determined by the condition of the heart. That's true. The reason you respond to the Word of God, the Gospel, the message of Christianity, the reason you respond to it the way that you have is because of the condition of your heart. That's always true, and it's especially true when the Gospel is proclaimed. So the parable teaches that. But it also teaches that the condition of your heart is demonstrated by the life that you live. I can't see into your heart any more than you can see into mine. But your life is always declaring for everyone around you, including yourself, what is truly in your heart. A messy, disordered, self-oriented heart leads to a messy, disordered, self-oriented life. A peaceful, well-ordered, God-centered heart produces a peaceful, well-ordered, God-centered heart life. That is a theological axiom. This is a truth that Scripture teaches over and over again. The condition of your heart inevitably works its way out in your life. Jesus teaches this much in Mark 7, 21-23. Solomon reminds us of this in Proverbs 4:23 when he says this, guard your hearts with all diligence or vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So your life is the result of the condition of your heart. For that reason, Solomon says, guard it, guard your heart. Everything you do, everything you say, has its point of origin in the invisible part of you that the Bible calls the hearts. And that's also, of course, what we see in the parable of the sower. And we've seen it as we've worked our way through, that the condition of the heart is demonstrated by your words, your actions, and your reactions. All of that is rooted in the heart, and the parable of the sower teaches us that lesson once again. And the true condition of the heart 
shows itself in life. And here in this parable, the Lord Jesus gives us four soils, four types of soils that are described in this parable. And each soil represents a different type of heart in which the Word of God is sown. And what the parable of the sower does for us is that it gives us insight into what's going on at the heart level of someone every time they hear and respond to the Word of God. The first three soils that we'll see give us the anatomy of a rejection. Why does someone reject the Word of God? Why does someone reject the Gospel? Well, this parable tells us why. And we saw one soil last week. We'll look at a second this week. But the fourth soil which the Lord describes in verse 20 of Mark 4, it shows us what it looks like to respond in true faith to the Word of God. It's a response that clings to the Word and eventually bears fruit. And that, of course, is our example, the the type of soil that we want to be. But along the way, we see these miscarried soils, these soils that don't respond appropriately to the Word, and we can learn a lot from each soil. So, why don't you stand with me, and we'll get in the text, all right? Mark chapter 4, and we're going to read beginning in verse 14. Actually, I, I take that back. We're going to start reading in verse 2, and I'm going to hop around a little bit, okay? Read probably 2 to 9, and then we'll jump down to verse 14, okay? So verse 2 is the beginning of the parable. I just want you to get it again in your mind. And Jesus, he, was teaching them many things in parables, And was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and yielded, it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then in verse 14, he gives his explanation to his disciples. The sower, verse 14, sows the word, and these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. You may be seated. So we're slowly working our way through this parable, and of course our objective is to glean all that we can 
from this passage so that we would learn what the Lord would have us to do as a church. And last week we observed from verse 14 that the sower in Jesus' parable refers to anyone who sows the seed of the word. And then in verse 15, we looked at the first type of soil, which we called the hard-hearted hearer. This is a kind of person who has so hardened their heart against the Word of God by pride and by unbelief that when the Bible is declared or when the Gospel is shared with them, it sort of bounces right off of their heart and takes no root at all. It's a type of immediate rejection of the Word of God. And because this type of rejection happens so matter-of-factly. The person just says, I don't want to hear anything about this. I'm not interested in Christianity. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. I'm just here. Well, this happens because, Scripture says, their heart has been hardened by pride and unbelief. And because this person, this type of hearer, rejects the Word of God so matter-of-factly and so directly and so decisively, The devil, says Jesus, is able to snatch up the word so that the seed doesn't bear any fruit. Now we know that the seed itself would not have borne fruit anyway because it could never have taken root on this compacted soil. But the devil's actions, or action rather, is just a further confirmation of the judgment of God on this type of individual for their hard-hearted unbelief. And from this perspective, from the perspective of human responsibility, this person has looked straight in the face of truth, straight in the face of Christ, and totally rejected Him. And unless God comes and smashes that proud heart and tills up the soil of it, They will remain in unbelief. So we pray for that kind of individual. Lord, change their hearts. But that individual, from a perspective of human responsibility, has no one to blame for his hard-hearted unbelief than himself. He was given all the evidence, all the truth, all the opportunity, but in his pride, he rejected it in favor of his own judgment, his own evaluation, his own wisdom, and his own self-made religion. So that's soil number one, the hard-hearted hearer. But there's a second soil that Jesus mentioned to us in the parable, and we began to look at it last week. And we called that soil uh, the superficial hearer. This is the kind of person who hears the word, but eventually rejects it outright. The hard-hearted hearer rejects it immediately. I don't want anything to do it. The second type of soil is someone who eventually rejects it. And we meet them in verse 5 of chapter 4. Jesus said, Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Now just to refresh you a bit, he's not talking about here the rocky ground is not gravel. It's not even gravel mixed into the soil. It's referring to the layer of bedrock that would have been just below the surface of the tilled soil 
And it would have been invisible to the farmer. So he wouldn't have seen it. It would have looked just like the rest of the soil. He would have sown his seed in the soil. And naturally, he would have expected it to grow just like the rest of his seed. And actually, it does grow. It grows really rapidly. Verse 6, 5 says, immediately it sprang up. Immediately. It, it happened quickly. It's very promising. Lots of life. Lots of excitement. Lots of potential. But there was a very serious problem with this type of hero. At the end of verse 5, the plant had no depth of soil. And the result of that was verse 6. When the sun came up, it scorched the plant and it withered away. Now, in verse 16, Jesus tells us what this illustration of shallow soil, shallow rooted plant, what that means. So look at verse 16 with me. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So these two verses give us really the anatomy of a superficial hearer. And we saw last week that there's something that stands out right away about this type of hearer, which Jesus emphasized in verse 16. And it's this, the superficial hearer is the kind of person who seems to be primarily driven by what? Emotions, right. Verse 16 says that he hears the message and immediately receives it with what? Joy. The emotion is there. He should be joyful. We should be joyful about the message of the gospel. But there's actually a contrast between verses 16 and 17 that point out the deficiency with this kind of joy. We could translate the end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17 like this. They immediately receive it with joy, but... They have no firm root in themselves. They receive the message with all the joy and all the emotion that you would expect, but they have no root. And the contrast, of course, is between the joy and emotion versus the rootedness with which they should have received the Word of God. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is that this type of hearer it's someone who's listening to the Word taught. And they get pulled in. They get swept up in the emotion of it all. It's emotionalism. They're excited about the message. They're excited about the sower. Maybe the sower, the preacher, the teacher is especially dynamic. And you, we see this all over. They hear the guy. They love the guy. They love the message. They're euphoric about all that's going on at this church or in this moment. And because they're after, their orientation is on themselves, and they're after just emotional experiences, they get swept up in all the excitement without really ever considering the truth of the message of Christ. They're not so much interested in the content of the gospel message. Their focus is on the feelings and experience of it all. 
In other words, they're interested in Jesus only for the emotional high that they can get from him. And the issue, as we identified last week, is not so much that we should be without emotions. I mean, we are emotional people. Uh, we are people who have emotions. We were created. It's part of our constitution. The issue is not emotions. The issue is that God did not create us to be led by our emotions. We are to be led by truth. Which is why we have the Bible. We are to be led by the truth. And the Word of God, Romans 12, 2, Ephesians 4, 23, the Word calls us, God calls us, to renew our minds according to this book, to the principles and promises of His Word, to train our minds, to renew our minds, so that they're rooted in Scripture, and so that our minds, renewed and reformed by Scripture, will be our guide. The mind informed, shaped, molded by the Word of God is to be the leader of your life. Emotions, then, and feelings are designed by God to follow behind the truth. But in the case of our superficial hearer, his mistake is that he makes his feelings or his intuition the final arbiter of truth. It's subjectivity in the extreme. His emotions are his guide. So he says, my intuition, my feelings, my senses, you know, that's my God. That's my North Star. Wherever my emotions or intuition or feelings or senses lead, that's where I go. And that sort of mentality of being led by emotions always ends the same way. If you live with your emotions as your sort of North Star, you will always end up lost, confused, discouraged, depressed. And let me, I'll just tell you something. I think that if we as the people of God could learn to do what God calls us to do, regardless of how we feel about it, if we could learn to do what God calls us to do, regardless of how we feel about it, if we could learn to be led by the truth of God's Word and put our feelings behind the truth, if we could learn that, I think we could shut our counseling department down. If we could learn to be a people led by truth regardless of how we feel, we would rid ourselves of most of the trouble we experience in our lives as far as self-inflicted trouble. So many of the issues we face, especially in counseling, they're the result of feelings-oriented living. Self-oriented, feelings-oriented Living where the individual is being pulled around and led by their feelings rather than by the Word of God. So what we do in counseling is the same thing you do in your own heart, your own life. Is you know someone comes and their life is a wreck and they need help, and we just all we do is say, okay, this is your north star, right? Follow this. This is what God wants you to do, regardless of how you feel about it. And it's amazing what happens when people start saying, okay, I'm going to obey God regardless of how I feel. All of a sudden, the feelings will start to catch up to you. But you focus here on the truth. And what I'm trying to say is that if we could learn to follow the truth 
and do what God calls us to do despite how we feel about it, that we would be the most joyful people on the planet. And someone might say, well, I thought you said it wasn't about emotion or joy. Right. It's not about joy. It's not about emotion. It's about the truth. It's about the Lord Jesus. It's about the gospel. But once you transcend your feelings and get your heart fixed on the truth of the gospel, on the person of Jesus Christ, that's when you become the most joyful, happy person on the planet. But the joy comes after you bow the knee to Christ over and over and over again. The world is full of people trying to find joy and happiness in themselves, using everything around them to please themselves and to make them happy. Scripture comes to us, Jesus comes to us and says, no, 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 no. That is not the way to joy. The way to joy is to get your eyes, your heart, set up on me. And when you do that, when your target is set on Christ, and you follow Him simply because He is worthy of your life, you will find that in giving your life, you actually gain it. Jesus Himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. What is the greatest gift you have? What's the greatest thing you possess? It's your life. And Jesus calls us to lay that possession down. And in the doing of that, you will find a blessing proportionate to the gift you lay down. When you give your life to Christ, all your preferences, all your ambitions, all your goals, all your expectations, when you give them to Him, you find a joy, a bliss, a happiness that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword can ever take away. Because it's a joy that's in Christ. It's a joy that's rooted in Him and not in yourself. It's not centered around me. It's centered on Christ. And so I, the Christian then lays down his life because that's what Jesus tells him to do. He does it regardless of how he feels about it. He lays down his life. He takes up his cross and he follows the Lord and when he does that, he finds that at Christ's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that is the pathway to true joy in giving your life. This is the paradox of Christianity. The only way to find your life is to let it go, to lay it down at the feet of Christ. Once you do that, you find that what you gain is far superior to what you had before. And every Christian in this room could testify to that. But in the case of the superficial hearer, it's not about the Lord. It's not about truth at all. It's really about Him. It's about His emotion, His experience. He is at the center of His life. Everyone exists to serve Him. He is at the center. He's all about Himself. And verse 17 says, They have no firm root in themselves. What does that mean? Well, it means there's no root of truth in them at all. It's all about self. They're oriented on themselves, and therefore emotions are what lead them, and when emotions fizzle, so do they. 
And that's what we see in the middle of verse 17. So look there with me. In the middle of verse 17, Jesus tells us exactly why these folks eventually reject the word of God. That's verse 17. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. All right, so there, you see that. There are two reasons they fall away. Verse 16 emphasizes this sort of emotionalism. And then in verse 17, we're given two reasons they fall away, two catalysts for their rejection. The first one is affliction. Affliction. That's a very interesting word. It's translated into English as tribulation, trouble, or affliction. But it's from the Greek word thlipsis, which literally means to squeeze, press, or crush. And that's what trouble, tribulation, difficulty feels like, isn't it? It's pressure. It's the pressure of life is on. It's we're being squeezed and it's painful. And what the pressure does with the superficial hearer is that it actually reveals the true condition of their heart. The pressure is like the scorching heat in the parable. It sort of presses in, the heat comes on the plant and demonstrates that its roots are inadequate to get down into the moisture of the soil. In the same way, the pressure of life squeezes the heart of the superficial hearer and demonstrates that they were not truly the Lord's in the first place. The pressure of life demonstrates that it was just emotionalism all along. There's a lot of helpful applications here. The pressure and the difficulty of life, in your life and mine as well, is sort of like a vice that God puts around our hearts. And He turns the vice. And He turns it. And He turns it. And eventually, what's on the inside is squeezed out for you to see and for everyone around you to see. Now, you know that. Right? You're driving, and all of a sudden you hear a funny sound coming underneath your vehicle. Uh, and you look, and the air pressure monitor is going off, and you're like, oh, that's okay. It's just, a, it's just that sensor's messed up. And your wife says, uh, no, that's unusual. <laughs> and it's a flat tire. What comes out of you in that moment is the pressure. It's kind of flippant, but it's reality. The pressure in that moment is revealing what is in your heart, Christian. So it could be a a flat tire, it could be work, it could be family, it could be finances. It could be anything in life that sort of squeezes you and it comes on you and the pressure reveals what's in your heart. And really the pressure is not the issue. The pressure is there. In a fallen world, pressure is everywhere. The issue is how you respond to that pressure. The issue is your response. If you respond to the pressure of life sinfully, you will only compound your trouble. You start throwing the tire wrench around, you're only going to get problems. Right? The police officer is going to see you, a lunatic on the side of the highway, and he's going to pull over, and uh, he's going to restrain you somehow if you lose your cool. If you respond to the pressures of life sinfully, it only compounds your trouble. 
You could do this with stress, anxiety, um, health problems. If you respond to these situations in life that God uses to squeeze you and show you what's in your heart, if you respond to them sinfully, you are only compounding your trouble. The Christian, when the pressure of life is on, he often sees very ugly things that come out. And it breaks his heart. And the pressure reveals that he is not as godly, as holy as he thought he was. But for the Christian, when he sees that, when the vice of pressure is around him and all this ugly stuff comes out of his heart, the Christian's response is not to say, I'm done with Jesus. What's the Christian's response? To run to Jesus. Right When you see all of that ugliness coming out, the Christian is forced to throw himself afresh on Christ and remember that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Right? Sin had left stains and sin is still there and it works its way out. And I'm reminded over and over again that I need Christ. And so the Christian's response when he sees the ugliness of his heart is to run to Jesus. But that's not the response of the superficial here. The superficial here, when the pressure of life is on and all this ugly stuff starts coming out of his heart, he begins to run away from Christ and look for the exit ramp. He doesn't like what Christianity is doing to him, he might say. It was great at first. It was wonderful. It felt great. I was feeling tremendous. But now I just feel bad. I just see my shortcomings all the time, and I just, I want to go somewhere where the message is a little more upbeat, and I can be a little happier. And all of that points to the fact that his joy was rooted in whom? In himself. It wasn't rooted in Christ, because this pressure is designed to throw him on Jesus. And he looks at the pressure and says, this is not what I want. That's catalyst number one, the pressures of life. Demonstrate the condition of his heart. That it's not a heart that loves Jesus and the gospel. It's a heart that loves self and ease. Catalyst number two, verse 17 says, When affliction or persecution arises, because of what? Because of the word. When persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This is another interesting word. The word persecution here refers to a program of oppression that's designed to systematically harass or oppress a group of people. So it's talking about a systematized, widespread, organized persecution of some group of people. Okay, so verse 17, who is the group of people who are being systematically oppressed here? Well, it's people who are somehow connected to the Word of God. The persecution arises because of the word. And this type of word-oriented, Christ-oriented persecution is the undoing of the superficial here. I'm going to show you why. The reason for this, the reason that this kind of persecution undoes the superficial here 
is because all along he's really just wanted his best life now. He's after a message that will make him feel better and promise him ease and comfort on this side of heaven. And he'll follow anyone who will give him that message that makes him feel a little better. So he bounces from church to church. He bounces from message to message, religion to religion. He's just trying to find something to make him feel good. And so here he is. He decided to follow Jesus because he was swept up by the emotion of it all. And then suddenly the comfortable life that he thought he had signed up for is upended by persecution. In fact, the people that he used to love now actually hate him. And not only do they hate him, but the whole neighborhood has a plan in which they are going to make this superficial hearer's life miserable so that he will close his mouth and stop talking about the Word so that he will leave Christ altogether. And these people have a design to oppress this man and make his life miserable. And really, these people, their systematic oppression is nothing different than what Jesus told his disciples would happen all along. Somehow, though, the superficial hearer missed the message of John 15, 19, where Jesus said to his followers, Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, we don't want to be hated. If you want to be hated, you probably have some issue. Nobody wants to be hated. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be received. This is part of the leverage of this systematic oppression. If you can make people feel hated, then all of a sudden they'll be in despair and trying to get the love they really want. But Jesus said, look, if you're going to follow me, the world is going to hate you. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, class, what do wolves do to sheep? They love on them, take care of them, take them to the park for a stroll. They devour them. And he said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. This is reality. This is what Jesus told his disciples. This is what's coming for you. But somehow, the superficial hearer missed all of that. They missed John 16, 33. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. They were looking, they wanted the, the Jesus track that was all easy and smooth. No bumps, no gravel roads, just nice, smooth highway. How did they miss it? How did they miss Jesus' message of suffering that permeates all of his preaching and teaching. Well, they missed it because they weren't truly listening. That's the point, isn't it? Mark 4, 9. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. This, is, this parable is designed to show us the type of hearers. There's a type of hearing that's hard-hearted. You reject it immediately. There's a type of hearing that is delayed rejection. But it's hearing that just goes in one ear and out the other. It's superficial hearing. It's the kind of hearing that hears a message and takes away whatever it wants to hear. They were so emotionally driven that they didn't actually listen to Jesus when He said 
that the entry point into the Christian life is not self-pampering and self-exaltation, but self-crucifixion. Somehow they missed that. I mean, how do you miss that? That's the initial gateway into the Christian life, but somehow they missed it. And my theory is this. When they heard Jesus say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is my theory. They probably heard that and thought, wow, that is so stirring. That's profound. That's so poetic and wonderful and emotionally stimulating and gripping. And they talked with themselves and said something like, but he doesn't really mean that, does he? No, 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 he can't mean that. I mean, surely he knows that we all live for ourselves and we're after one thing here. So why would he say we have to deny ourselves? That doesn't make any sense. And so they take Jesus' words as mere poetry. And because of that, they follow Jesus for a short while, but then when they realize that it wasn't poetry at all, but it is reality, they start looking for the escape hatch. They weren't listening to Jesus at all. They were just listening to what they wanted to hear. They weren't listening to his words about persecution and pressure. And so when persecution comes, they say, wait, wait, wait. This is not what I signed up for. And then, notice this. Since the persecution is tied directly to the word of God and to following Christ, there is a very easy way for them to escape it. Now, what leads these people? Their emotions. They're just looking for the path of least resistance. Well, there's a very easy way to get out of your neighbors wanting to stone you and hate you and spit on you. There's a really easy way to get it. All you have to do is deny the word and stop being a faithful sower of the message. Do that and we'll stop persecuting you. So that's exactly what they do. Look at verse 17. Immediately, they fall away. Why do they fall away? Well, because it's the exit ramp. I can stop declaring the word. I can stop following Jesus. And I can get, that's the easy button for me. All of a sudden, life gets back to what I really want. I'll figure out some other way to be happy. But right now, I got to get out of this mess I'm in. So immediately, they fall away. It's an interesting phrase. It's only two words in Greek. Immediately, and then the next word is the, the Greek word skandalizo. It's where we get our word scandalize. And it means to give an offense to someone or to shock them in such a way that they are brought down or fall. Which is why it's translated as fall away here. It shocks them. It's a stumbling block for them. It's It's too much for them. It it shatters all their expectations, and it's just too much. And so the shock of it all causes them to fall away. And actually, it's passive. So we could translate the phrase this way. Immediately, they're scandalized. When persecution and suffering comes, immediately. Just as immediately as they were filled with joy and followed Jesus, just as immediately they're scandalized by the persecution and the difficulty. The idea here is that the superficial here is so shocked by the fact that the road to heaven is not smooth and easy and that Jesus would permit His followers to suffer and they would have to endure hardship and life would be hard for them. 
He's so shocked by that. It's so scandalous for him that he can't take it. All of his expectations of the Christian life were that this is all going to be easy. This was going to be smooth. It was going to be euphoric. And this is not at all why I followed you, Jesus. He's so disoriented that he can't take it anymore. And so he leaves. He falls away. And this is passive language, but it's an action that he commits. He was happy to follow Jesus when things were nice and fair. He was a fair-weather Christian, if you will. But when the dark clouds of providence came, when the trials came, it demonstrated that his heart was not the kind of heart who hears and obeys. His heart was full of superficiality and it had no root in it. It demonstrated that he had followed Jesus just for his own pleasure. Jesus was just an accessory to his life. He would follow Jesus when it was easy, but he would leave when it was hard. And it's really, it's a lot like pliable in the Pilgrim's Progress. Remember, pliable in the Pilgrim's Progress was happy to talk with Christian uh, and, to, and to muse on heaven and all of the benefits. He was happy to talk with Pilgrim about life in heaven and what it would be like and all of the blessings of following Jesus. But as soon as they got in the slough of despond, Pliable said, I'm out. I'm going back home. As soon as it got muddy, he left. And it's the same way with superficial hearers. As soon as things get hard, they leave. They're happy to follow Jesus as long as He keeps meeting their felt needs and as long as they're emotionally charged. But when the emotions shift, as they always do, they no longer care to follow Jesus. Okay, so that's the second soil. That's the second soil. And I just want to sort of wrap all that up for you from the second soil. Just bring this home real quick. Throughout the history of the church, God has used persecutions and hardships as a way of refining His people on the one hand and then demonstrating who really belongs to Him on the other. There's always a twofold action that's happening when persecution hardships come. They demonstrate who the real people of God are and it also refines God's people so that their love to Him grows. And I don't know what the future of our country is. I look around like you and I see that things are increasingly hostile to Christians. I, I see that just like you do. And it's easy for me to see how in a few decades the faith of every one of us here this morning will be put to the test. Of course, it's being put to the test even now. And the reality is that none of us know how we will respond when this kind of systematic oppression comes, the kind of oppression that Jesus promised would come to each one of us. We don't know how we'll respond. We hope that we would respond with the sort of courage that brothers and sisters have responded with, those who have gone before us. We hope that God would sustain us. We trust that He will. And we trust that we would be able to stand with courage and faith but we really don't know. You really don't know how you will respond when the pressure 
is on. So the question is, how do we as Christians prepare for such a time? Jesus said it's coming for us. Jesus said persecution will come. So the question is, how do we get ready for that? Well, I think this parable gives us a great insight to that. And this second soil was unable to nurse and carry the seed of the word through the difficulties of trials and tribulation because it had no depth of soil. There were no deep roots. So if we're going to endure persecution, the roots of understanding have to run deep. You have to have deep understandings of God's faithfulness, of God's sovereignty, of God's wisdom, and of God's goodness. If the roots of those theological realities aren't running deep in your heart, you will be like this superficial soil. When the pressure comes, the roots aren't there, and you won't respond the way you would hope to respond. If you're going to persevere in faith, this is the first thing, if you're going to persevere in faith, you have to be actively growing your roots into the Word of God. Now, we don't know if persecution is coming, like I said, but we do know that something's coming, and that something is hardship, pressure, affliction. Those were the two catalysts in verse 17, persecution and then pressure or affliction. We know that affliction, suffering, hardship is coming. It's coming for you, whether you realize it or not. And it will come when you least expect it. And the pressure of that suffering will squeeze your heart and it will be a testing of your faith and your faith will be refined as gold or it will demonstrate that you never truly love the Lord at all. That's what suffering does. It demonstrates the sincerity of your faith. If you're able to go through suffering and then you look back on it and you still love Jesus, that is your faith being refined as gold. But if you go through suffering and you look back on it and you say, oh, this is, this is not what I signed up for. That is a demonstration that you never had the real thing. First John 2.19 they went out from us because they were never really of us. So suffering is coming for you. It's coming for me. I don't want to be a doomsday prophet here. This is just reality. Suffering is coming. Hardship is coming. And the way we prepare for it is that we labor in faith to be ready to receive it. We seek to grow our theological roots deep into the soil of God's Word so that when the heat, the pressure comes... We are like the tree in Psalm 1, firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. No matter the drought, its leaf doesn't wither, and it can endure the hardship because its roots are deep in the spring of the Word of God. So let me ask, are you preparing? What are you doing to prepare for the inevitable drought and pressure that's coming your way? Some of you are in that right now. And the way we sustain ourselves through it all is through orienting our lives, not on how great we feel about the trial, but on what? The Word of God. We feed on the promises of God. We get our eyes off ourselves, onto Christ, onto His Word. So let me give you another application real quick. 
And that's this. Every Christian needs to constantly refine what's leading him. Every Christian needs to be constantly refining what is their North Star. What's leading me in my life? Your default, the default of every human being since the fall of Adam, is to be led by your emotions. That's your default. And if you're not constantly repenting, turning from being an emotionally led human to being a truth-led human, if you're not constantly doing that, you will inevitably be pulled around by your emotions. Constantly, the Christian has to reorient his life around the truth of God's Word. Daily, moment by moment, you have to be refining what is your target. And it's the truth of God's Word. The center of your life has to be the Word of God. Every Christian must be steadily reorienting his life around the Word of God. Let me give you one more application. And it's this. If you're going to persevere through trial, you must go to war against the heart idol of ease and comfort. If I had to say, what was the heart idol of this superficial hearer? There's all sorts, of course. But ease and comfort seem to be the emphasis. Because what do you lose when affliction comes and persecution comes? The easy life you used to have. The comfort of walking through God's world and rejoicing at His creation. It's hard to do that when arrows are flying at you, when rocks are being hurled at you. So if you're going to persevere when life is hard, the pressure is on, you've got to go to war against the heart idol of ease and comfort. And that starts really with the dethroning of yourself from the center of your life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must crucify yourself and live for Him. You've got to learn, each one of us, over and over again. We have to learn to say with the Apostle Paul from Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the problem in our lives is that I gets really big. And it becomes all about the I. And Jesus says, if you're going to have joy, if you're going to have life abundant, the I, which is you, has to be crucified. Join Paul. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we have to be able to say, my life is no longer my own. I belong to Him. It's all about Him. And of course, when you lay your life down, you find a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And you start asking different questions. You don't ask, how do I feel about that anymore? What do you ask? You ask, what has God said about that? What would God have me do? And you understand, like the old hymn, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You understand that the pathway to joy is through trusting and obeying the Lord. And so you ask the question, not how do I feel, but what does God want from me? And the Lord promises, if you lay your life down for Him, you give it up, you give it back to Him, He promise you, promises you life 
eternal, and joy inexpressible that begins even now. But, you will never experience that unless you lay it down for Him. And may the Lord help us to do that over and over again. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this reminder of superficial hearing. Lord, we don't want to be the kind of people who just hear the message and really take from it whatever we want to hear. We want to be those who hear from Christ and respond to Him in faith and obedience. We want to be those who ask, what have you commanded us? We want to be those kind of people who hear the Word and are quick and faithful to do what you command. And Father, we know that in the doing of your commandments is life and joy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, one, pardon us of our enormous iniquity against you for having lived for ourselves for so long. And, Father, that you would help us as we seek to pursue Christ more earnestly and to follow him wherever he leads. And, Father, we ask that you would use us individually and as a church or to make known the name of Christ in this world, regardless of what you bring us through this culture, through this nation. Help us to be salt and light and to be faithful and to persevere in hearing and in truth and obedience, even when the comforts and the pleasures of life we used to enjoy are ripped away from us and we only have you. Because, Father, that, of course, for us is enough. So, Lord, help us to all say that is true for us. And, Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.